You can have a seat. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Blake Jennings. I'm the teaching pastor over at Southwood. And if you haven't seen me, it's because I've never been over here on a Sunday morning before. I've always been stuck at the other campus. So it's great to be with you today. We'll be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes again. So you can turn to chapter 2 in the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we're going to talk about a topic that is both important and practical. You deal with it every day. We're going to talk about money. That's a subject that's important to God. You, you don't have to read long in the Bible to see how important it is to God. If you open up to the Gospels and you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you'll find that 25% of Jesus' teachings were on money, and one out of three of his parables were on the subject. He spoke about money and wealth more than almost any other subject in all of his teaching ministry. So it's a subject that's important to God, and it's clearly important to our world. People are thinking about money all the time. Just look at how often the word money pops up in the titles of the most popular songs in our country. Here's just a sampling of them over the last 50 or so years. 1960, Money, That's What I Want by Barrett Strong. 1973, The Classic Money by Pink Floyd. 1976, Slightly Less Classic, Money, Money, Money by ABBA. Then 1985, Money for Nothing, Dire Straits. Half you guys are hearing it right now. We grew up with that song. 1990, Money Talks by ACDC. 2007, I Get Money by 50 Cent. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So many songs about money because money's what most people think about most of the time. We think about how to make money. We dream about how to spend money. We fear losing our money. Money is what makes our world go around. It's what, what drives politics and education and science and technology. You cannot go through life without thinking a lot about money. And so it's no surprise that Solomon is going to talk in detail about money in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is the next idol that we're going to look at in the book of Ecclesiastes. And just to refresh your memory, what is the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes? It's a book that God has given you to crush all the idols in your life so that you're left with nothing but God to cling to. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's a gift. It's meant to crush all the idols in this world that compete with God for your love and affection. Now, what is an idol? Most people think of it as like a little statue of stone or wood. But no, an idol, the essence of an idol is simply any person or thing other than God that you cling to to find satisfaction and security in life. So it's anything that you're turning to to find security, significant satisfaction other than God. That's an idol. And money is an idol that most people in this world worship. Now, let's be clear. No one's actually worshiping money itself. Nothing particularly interesting about a dollar bill or a stack of coins. What we worship is what we think money can buy us. And there's a couple things that people think money can buy them that leads them to worship wealth. It's kind of a two-headed idol. So some people worship wealth because they believe that it can buy them satisfaction in life. So they, they want to be satisfied. They want to fill the hole in their heart with the things that money can buy. So this is the type of person who tends to overspend. They're always spending money to get that next new thing. But as soon as they've unwrapped that next new thing, they're already thinking about the next next new thing that they're going to buy. 
And, and it's that hope of the new thing that gets them through the day. That's what they dream about. That's what they look forward to in the future is the next thing they'll buy. So those are people who are looking for satisfaction in wealth. They tend to overspend. But a lot of people are the opposite. They are not looking for satisfaction through wealth. They're looking for security. These are the kind of people who tend to oversave. It's very difficult for them to part with their money, whether they're spending it on themselves or on other people, because in their mind, money equals protection. The bigger their bank account, the bigger their retirement fund, the safer they feel about the future. Now, either extreme, whether you're chasing money to find satisfaction or security, either extreme counts as idolatry, because in both Cases you are looking to money to provide something that only God can give you. Okay, so let's look in the book of Ecclesiastes at what Solomon will say about the idol of wealth. And he's going to start with some bad news. He wants you to understand why money makes a lousy God. So he begins with the limits of wealth, why wealth cannot provide what you think it can provide. So let's jump right in. We're going to start in chapter 2. Solomon is going to start by addressing that first group of people who, who look to money to provide satisfaction. So these are the people who overspend, who are always trying to get new possessions to satisfy the hole in their heart. Solomon wants us to understand in no uncertain terms that money can never satisfy you no matter how much you have. Look at chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 4. These are some verses you've seen before. Solomon says, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And as best we can tell, Solomon would have been a multi-billionaire in today's economy. So in effect, he had unlimited money. There was nothing in all of ancient Israel that Solomon could not have. So he had all the things that money can buy, and yet here's what he discovered. Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. No profit. His life was no better for having all of that wealth than it was without the wealth. All of those possessions, they, they brought him no happiness. Notice it doesn't say a little profit. It doesn't say some profit. It says no profit at all. No lasting happiness. No lasting satisfaction through his billions of dollars and countless possessions. Now Solomon learned a lesson from that. Turn to chapter 5, verse 10. Here's the lesson that he drew out of that. He tells us in verse 10 of chapter 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. He who loves money will never be satisfied, no matter how much he has. There is not enough money or wealth on this entire planet to fill the hole in your heart. Because it is impossible for money to satisfy you. It's not in the nature of money to satisfy the human heart. It's like trying to satisfy your thirst by drinking sand. 
You can go drink a Sahara Desert's worth of sand. It will never satisfy your thirst because it's not in the nature of sand to satisfy human thirst, just like it's not in the nature of money to satisfy the human soul. can never fill that hole in your heart, no matter what you buy. That's why a lot of rich people buy really silly things. Really silly things. Here is a, a, a Saudi sheikh who had a garage with 37 cars in it. So he had 37 cars, but it wasn't enough. He wanted one more. So for car number 38, he bought this Mercedes-Benz that's encrusted in diamonds. It's worth $48 million. I'm a, I'm a car guy. I'm just going to tell you, that's the dumbest car I've ever seen. You could never drive that car. If you pull up to a stoplight, and what are we all going to do? We're going to grab the tire iron out of the back of our cars and go pop one of those diamonds off. You try to go to HEB to buy groceries, he's going to have to hire a security guard to sit in the back seat and watch his car while he's gone. And imagine getting in a fender bender on one of those. I mean, you just ding the bumper on that thing, and it's $2 million. Silly car, ridiculous purchase, almost as ridiculous as this $16.5 million iPhone. The home button on that phone is a 26-carat diamond. Just one problem with that beautiful little phone. Do you notice it's an iPhone 5? It's already two years out of date. All those diamonds cannot protect it from becoming obsolete. So now the college student walking down the street with an off-the-shelf iPhone 6 is already better off than this silly rich guy. Why do people buy such dumb things? We look at these stories of conspicuous consumption and they make us laugh, but they should also make us a little bit sad because why did these guys buy these ridiculous things? Because they are slaves of their wealth. They're like an addict trying to get another hit. 37 cars didn't do it. Maybe number 38 will if I cover it in diamonds. No, money can never satisfy the human heart. No matter how much you have, it can never fill you. That's what Solomon learned. That's what so many rich people have learned. Money has made a fool of them because it could never satisfy their hearts. So arguably the richest man who's ever lived in the history of America is a guy named John D. Rockefeller. When he died, his wealth in today's money would have been $336 billion dollars with a B, so way more than Buffett, way more than Bill Gates, more than any of them. And yet he found that I have made many millions, he says, but they have brought me no happiness. Not some, not a little, but no happiness. Billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, no happiness at all. Henry Ford, the guy who built Ford Motor Company, worth billions and billions of dollars, by the end of his life, he sadly found, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. It was too late. He'd spent his whole life chasing wealth, and the result was less happiness than he had when he was earning minimum wage fixing cars. What these men learned is that there's no amount of money you could ever earn that could satisfy your soul. You'll never find lasting happiness in money and possessions, no matter how much you have. So if you're the kind of person who thinks that the next house, the next car, the next jewelry, the next financial accomplishment will finally satisfy you. If money and wealth and possessions could not satisfy Solomon or Rockefeller or Ford, it's not going to satisfy you. Not ever. Money can never satisfy the human heart. So that's the first thing Solomon wants you to understand about the limits of wealth. He speaks to that first group of people trying to find satisfaction through money. Now he's going to speak to the second group of people. 
those who are trying to find security and safety through their wealth. What Solomon wants you to understand is no matter how much you have, money by its very nature can never make you safe. My dad and I replaced some siding on his house a few weeks ago. And when you looked at this wall that we repaired, from the outside it looked perfect. There's new paint on it. it there's no stains, no, no holes. It looked great. The only problem was it had gotten water up underneath. And so when you leaned on it, it just crumbled away. It was rotten from the inside. That's what you'll find if you try to find security through wealth. It will look good. The world will tell you the bigger your bank account, the safer you are. But then you lean on it. You trust in it. And it'll let go on you when you least expect it. Solomon wants you to understand money, no matter how much you have, can never buy you safety or security in life. And he gives you a few reasons for that. So why can't money, why can't wealth make you safe? Reason number one, look at verse 11. He says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Solomon's just making an observation about life. The more money you have, the more people you have to pay to keep your money safe. So you got to pay bankers and financial advisors and you got to pay for lockboxes and security storage facilities and security guards and all the people to watch over your wealth. And then you got to pay people to take care of all your stuff. You got to pay cleaning crews and mechanics and all these people to service your stuff. And then you got to pay the government because the more money you have, the more they're going to take. And so the more money you have, the more of it's going out. But not only that, the more money you have, the more people there are over here trying to get their hands on your money. So wealth, it, it complicates relationships. You inherit a fortune and all of a sudden your children are your heirs and your friends are your entourage and you don't know whether people really like you or just your money. That's why the proverb is true. A, a simple life really is a blessed life. A simple life free of all of this stuff, all of this wealth is a life where you don't have all of the complications, all of the hands reaching in, all of the people to pay. It can be an incredibly blessed life. And that leads Solomon to a second observation about the failure of money to buy security. Look at verse 12. He tells us why money can make us anxious. Verse 12, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. So we have this lie in our heads that the bigger our bank account, the more secure we will be, the easier we will sleep. And Solomon says, no. That's not how life usually works. The regular middle-class person who works hard to provide for his or her family can sleep well at night. Not every night, but many nights. But when you become a multimillionaire, then you are kept up at night worrying about the companies that you run and the complex assets that you manage and all the investment decisions you're making because there's millions of dollars on the line and you're worried about whether you'll make a bad decision or whether someone will try to defraud you or steal from you. Another rich guy in the history of our country, a man named Vanderbilt, he said that the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Now, that's a first world problem that we'd all like to have. I'd like to be managing $200 million. But Vanderbilt is proof. If I had $200 million right now, I would not sleep better tonight than I did last night. In fact, I would probably sleep worse. Because the more money you have, the more stress you have. And Solomon, he's going to tell us why. Why is it that money increases stress? Well, the third problem with money that keeps it from giving you safety, look at verse 13. He says, There is a grievous evil 
which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. So here you've got a saver. You've got a man who worked hard his whole life and, and never parted with his money. He didn't spend it on himself. He didn't spend it on other people because he was saving it all to pass on to his son because he viewed money as protection, as security. But then one bad decision and all of it's gone. But Solomon understood that our wealth is often not under our control. He says later in the book, in chapter 9, prosperity does not always belong to those who are the wisest. Wealth does not always belong to those who are the most discerning, nor does success always come to those with the most knowledge. For time and chance may overcome them all. You are not the master of your money. Time and chance rule the day. You could lose all of your wealth in a heartbeat, whether through a bad decision or just bad luck. In 1946, as World War II came to an end, the nation of Hungary went through what economists call hyperinflation. That's where the cost of goods skyrockets so fast that your money can't keep up. And so the daily rate of inflation in 1946 in the country of Hungary was 200%. So prices of goods doubled every 15 hours. So just to put that in, in perspective, if you went to the store to buy a gallon of milk, their currency was called pango rather than dollars. So let's say that it cost you two pangos for a gallon of milk today. You go to sleep tonight, wake up the next morning, go buy the same gallon of milk. It now costs six pango. That adds up to an annual inflation rate of 13 quadrillion percent. Now, I can't wrap my mind around those kind of numbers, but I can see it. So here's what that looks like in pictures. It's a shop owner sweeping all the money out of his cash register down the drain. It's a woman lighting a, a cigar with a one billion pango bill billion with a B. So just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Let's say that you're a great businessman or a great businesswoman and you worked your whole life, 40 years slaving away to build your company. You had hundreds of employees. You invented new products. You worked hard. You made every good decision you can make. You did your job. You did your best. You saved it all and then 1946 hits. And your billion dollars, which you have saved, is now no longer worth the value of the paper it was printed on. You're wiped out overnight. That could happen anytime, any place, even here. Economists tell us there have been 55 hyperinflation events in the last century. No country is immune to this. To your money that you have saved and invested and worked so hard to accumulate, you could lose it in an instant through no fault of your own. You cannot trust in money to make you safe. There's no security to be found in it. But even if you end up being one of the lucky ones who gets to hold on to your wealth until the end of your life, the third problem with wealth, the third limit to money, is that you don't get to take any of it with you. Money doesn't travel well. You don't get to take it into the next life. That's what Solomon says next. Look again. Pick it up in verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hands. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? 
Solomon's point is it doesn't matter how big your house is, how flush your bank account is, you don't take any of it with you when you die. Now, the ancient Egyptians did not agree with that. They thought that you get to take your money with you, and so they built huge tombs. Do you know what those are called? Those are, those are the pyramids. Pyramids in Egypt, those massive buildings that we go to see, those are tombs of rich kings. And so they would build these tombs, and they would bury the kings with all of their wealth so that those kings could take their wealth with them into the afterlife. And so King Tut, he was a really rich king. When he died, he was buried in a gold sarcophagus, solid gold, surrounded by full-size solid gold chariots. And they sat in that tomb unmolested until the tomb was opened. In 1922, 3,000 years later, archaeologists opened the tomb, and guess what they found inside? All the gold still there was all there, golden chariots, golden statues, all there. King Tut took none of it with him into the next life. Neither will you. Doesn't matter how big your house is, how nice your car is, how much cash you have laying around or in your retirement fund, none of it goes with you. So money, when we look at the limits of wealth and why money makes such a lousy God, the issue is that it can't satisfy us, it can't make us safe, it can't go with us, and the worst problem of all, money can distract us from the things in life that actually can satisfy us, make us safe, and go with us. That's the danger of wealth. Wealth is not evil, it is not bad, but it is dangerous because it can distract you from what really matters in life. Solomon tells us an interesting but sad story in chapter 9. He says, There was once a small city with a few men in it, and a mighty king attacked it, besieging it and building strong siege works against it. However, a poor but wise man lived in the city, and he could have delivered the city by his wisdom. But no one listened to that poor man. So I concluded that wisdom is better than might, but a poor man's wisdom is despised. No one ever listens to his advice. What Solomon wants us to face is that as a species, we are remarkably foolish. We get distracted by money and wealth. We make much of people who have money. We make little of those without. We don't pay attention to the bigger things like, in this case, wisdom and truth and salvation. Humans were like monkeys. We're easily distracted by shiny things. We get so caught up with money and wealth that we lose our focus on things that really matter, like God and love and salvation and people. That's why money is so dangerous. And that's why Jesus tells us in his teaching ministry that you cannot worship two gods, you cannot have two masters. You can't worship both God and money. You must choose because each demands absolute allegiance from you. If you worship money, if you pursue money as your goal in life so that you can find significance or security through that money, it will invariably pull you away from God, away from love, away from truth, away from peace, away from everything good in your life. Money is dangerous because not only can it not satisfy you, can't make you safe, can't go with you, but it distracts you from the things that actually can. So that's the bad news about money. But Solomon's not done yet. It's not all bad news in the book. He wants us to understand that even though money and wealth makes a lousy God, it'll disappoint you and destroy you if you worship it, it actually makes a great gift. And that's where he goes next as he talks about money. Lousy God, but great gift. 
He wants you to understand that your money, your wealth, however much you have, is actually a gift from God to you. Look at chapter 5 again. Let's pick it up towards the end of the chapter, verse 18. Solomon says, Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What Solomon wants you to understand is that whatever money, whatever wealth you have, it's a gift that God has given you to be enjoyed Part of the reason God has given you money so that you can spend it on things that you enjoy. So when you go to the store and you buy that thing that you've been saving up for, according to Solomon, you should not feel guilty about that. Sometimes that's hard for us because we're Christians. We we look around and we see all the bad things that are done for money or with money and it can feel to us like money's kind of dirty. Like it's kind of a little bit evil. And Solomon says, no, no. No, it's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's actually, it's a gift from God to you. And when you spend your money on something you enjoy, God likes that. God is pleased with that. So if you go out to a restaurant tonight and you buy a nice steak, you should not feel guilty about that purchase. It's good to spend some of our money on things we enjoy. That's part of the reason God's given it to us. So in my household, I spend some of our money on roses for Julie on Legos for my kids, and on car parts for me. Do we need any of that? Well, Julie needs roses. I'm a good husband. Yes, that one's never getting cut. My kids do not need another Lego as long as they shall live. They have reached infinite Lego. Like we have more Legos than could be counted. I cannot store them all, but I keep buying them because that's what they want, and I like when they enjoy that. And for me, car parts, they just make my car go faster. I don't need that but I enjoy it. And God likes when we spend his gift on things we enjoy because he's a good father. He likes to see the smile on our faces. So part of the reason that God has given you whatever wealth, whatever money you have, is so you can spend some of it on things you enjoy. Second, Solomon tells us God has given us this gift of wealth to make our lives a little bit easier. He told us at the end of chapter 5 that that this wealth given from God, it helps distract us from all the pain and suffering in life. He tells us later in the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, wisdom provides protection just as money provides protection. Money can't make you safe in the ultimate sense. We've already talked about that. It can't buy you security. But his point is it can make life a little bit easier. You can think of money as grease on the wheels of life. It just makes life a little bit smoother. I'll give you an example. Last year, our air conditioning went out, like all the way out, like total. I have to replace everything. Now, if that would have happened 10 years ago when Julie and I were just trying to pay the bills and stay afloat, that would have caused me incredible stress. I probably would have had to go take a loan to fix the air conditioner. But over the last decade, we've saved money for emergencies. So when the AC went out, what did I do? I called a dude and he came and fixed it and it's done. Money fixed that problem. It's like grease on the wheels of life. That's part of the reason that God has given you money to make your life work smoother. Now, so far you look at the board and you think, I like where Blake is headed. This gift of wealth that God's given me to be enjoyed and to make life easier. But we're not done yet. There's a third. You know where this is headed. There's a balance to these two. 
The third thing that Solomon wants you to understand about this gift God has given you of wealth is it's a gift that comes with strings attached. So turn to chapter 12. Most important chapter in the whole book, the very end, chapter 12, when the narrator kicks back in. Let's look at chapter 12, verse 13, the most important verse in the whole book. Chapter 12, verse 13. You can highlight this. This is the summary of the whole book. The narrator says the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. You know, we're we're Christians. We know that satisfaction and security are ultimately found in only one place, right? In God. That's the only place you can find lasting satisfaction for your soul and lasting security for your heart. That's the only place you can go. And yet the narrator tells us, if you want to find lasting satisfaction and security in God, here is what God expects. You must trust and obey. Trust is really what he's getting at with fearing God. You trust God and you obey God to find the satisfaction and security you want in life. So let's take each of those in turn. Trust God. That's where it begins. If you want to find lasting satisfaction and security in life, you must trust God to provide those things. So what that looks like is that you reach a point in your life where you are willing to acknowledge that you cannot purchase the security and satisfaction for your soul through your money or through your good deeds or through your church attendance. That there's nothing you can do to find the the satisfaction and security you crave. You must receive it from God as a gift, a gift that his son earned for you. Paul talks about that in financial terms in the book of 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's unpack those financial terms. When it says that Jesus was rich, you know that's literally true because he's a creator. So he has everything. He's infinitely richer than Solomon, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, any of them. Infinitely rich, and yet he became poor. And that one's literal too. It's not metaphorical. Jesus, when he became poor, he became a baby born in a manger and placed in a feeding trough. And then think about, remember, his ministry, he wanders around teaching, and then he's crucified, and the soldiers are gambling over his possessions. What possessions are those? The clothes on his back and a coat, and that's it. Jesus was a homeless man who had no money, no retirement, no savings, no furniture, nothing but the clothes on his back. He became utterly poor. Why? So that through his poverty, the world would reject him. Remember, we're distracted by shiny things. So they said, no, that's not our kind of king. They rejected him, killed him, so that he could rise from the dead and give us life, eternal life for free. That's the rich part at the end. You are rich. Doesn't matter how much money you have because money doesn't equal rich. You're rich because you can have eternal life as a free gift through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to find satisfaction and security for your soul in this life and the next life, all you need to do is trust God. Just say, God, I believe. Your son Jesus became poor and died a criminal on a cross and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life and forgiveness as a free gift. So you find the security and the satisfaction that your soul craves through trust, that's first, and second, through obedience. You must obey God. 
Now, not to find eternal life. Again, that's a free gift, but you gotta obey God today to experience God's satisfaction and security today in your life. If you wanna enjoy what God wants to bless you with today, you must obey. You must obey, according to the narrator, in every area of your life, including with your money. Now, how do you obey God with whatever money, whatever wealth you have? Well, Paul tells us, best passage I know, 1 Timothy chapter 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world, which statistically speaking probably means all of us in this room. Relative to the world in general, we are wealthy. In this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. This is the balance to what we said earlier. When you go to the store and you buy that nice thing that you've been saving up for, should you feel guilty about it? No, as long as first you shared. When you go to a nice restaurant tonight and you buy a juicy steak, should you feel guilty about that? No, so long as you first shared with people who can't even afford beans to eat. That's the secret to enjoying your wealth. First, you share your wealth. That's where you start. You share it with God. You share it with other people. You share it with God's church, with missionaries, with charities, with neighbors, friends, family who are in financial need. First, you are rich towards uh, towards God and others. And then with what's left, you can enjoy it. You can buy that thing you've been wanting and enjoy it if first you shared So let me bring this home for you guys, give you a couple questions that I want you to think about when you leave here today. While this message is fresh on your mind, the two questions that I want you to ask yourself first, I want you to ask yourself of those two kind of people that we described at the beginning of the sermon, which is your tendency? Which kind of person are you? The person who overspends trying to find satisfaction through money and possessions or who oversaves trying to find security and protection through money? Acknowledge whichever kind you are. We all have one of those tendencies. Second, if you're married, I want you to talk to your spouse about that. That's a great conversation. Most marriages, you'll end up on kind of different sides of the fence or of the spectrum. In my marriage, Julie's the oversaver. I'm the overspender. It's actually good, though, that now from this message, we understand what's at the root of that. Because really, when we're discussing money or having an argument over money, she wants to save it. I want to spend it. It's not about the money, right? What's it about? Idolatry. She wants to save more because she feels like money buys protection. I want to spend more because I feel like money buys satisfaction and both are lies. And so we can talk about that and get to the point where we understand we're finding security and satisfaction in God alone. Now, what's wise to do with our money? Okay, so figure out which of those two kind of people you tend to be. Talk to your spouse about it and then spend some time repenting of it. Because I'm, I'm going to venture a guess that every single person in this room, myself included, has at some point worshipped money. All of us do it. We've worshipped money or we've worshipped wealth either for the satisfaction, the happiness we thought we could buy with it, or the safety and security we thought we could buy with it. We need to repent of that. So this afternoon, once you figure out which kind of person you are, talk to your spouse and then spend some time talking to God and confessing that. God, that was not okay. God, when I, when I was lusting after money, either to find happiness through what I could buy or security through my bigger bank account. That was idolatry. 
That's what that is. That's a big sin, and I'm sorry about that, God. That was not right. Please correct me. So figure out which kind of person you are. Talk to your spouse and then spend some time repenting of that sin. And then the second question that I want you to ask yourself when you go out from here today is I want you to ask, who can you share your wealth with? So again, according to the, that's the secret of enjoying your money. Your money is a gift God's given you. If you want to enjoy it as God intends, first you share with God and others. So who can you share with? Do you have a friend or a family member who is in financial need? Do you have a neighbor who needs your help? Have you given to the church? Have you given to charities? Have you given to missions? Who can you be rich towards? Now, you may say, hey, Blake, you don't understand. I got like no money. Well, it's not about amount. Maybe it's five bucks a month is all you can afford. That's fine. What matters is that the first thing you do when you get that paycheck is you share. Some of it, even if it's a small amount, you share first. Then you can enjoy what's left. So I want to challenge you to go this afternoon and think about which of those two kind of people you are. Talk to your spouse and spend some time repenting. And then think about who you can share with. Who can you be rich towards? Finally, let's pray together and ask God to help us to leave this idol behind. God, we, we want to say to you this morning, God, that we believe, even though it's so hard for us to believe, that you are indeed everything that we need. That if we have you, we have all the satisfaction and security we could ever need. We want to confess that through your son, we have the gift of eternal life and that we are rich because of that. No matter how much money we have, no matter how big a house, how many possessions, we are rich in the only thing that counts because we have life in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that, God. We thank you that on top of eternal life, you have also blessed us with money, that you have given us wealth, however much we have, whether it's relatively little or relatively much, all of it is a gift from you. We do not deserve it. Thank you for sharing your wealth with us, God. But we want to confess that we have often treated your wealth as an idol that we have, we have worshipped it. We have thought of, of money as something that could buy satisfaction or security in our lives. God, and that's sin. So please forgive us of our idolatry. Please cleanse us from worshipping our wealth, either to find happiness or safety in it. We pray, God, that you would crush that idol in our hearts and that you would fill us with you, that we would come to to look only to you for the satisfaction and security that we crave. We pray, Father, that towards that end, you would help us to become a family that is generous towards others, that we would be rich in sharing with those in need, that, that whenever we get money, we would think first and foremost about what we can give to someone else in need or to your church or to your work in the world. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be rich in sharing, generous in sharing with others. And pray most of all, Lord, that what we've learned this morning would stick with us and that you would use it through your spirit to transform us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, so that he might be more famous in this world. We praise you and thank you for all of your good gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. It's been fun to be with you this morning. Have a great week.